Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. This is an episode of Real Crime Stories. I'm your host. My name is Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD detective sergeant, 27-year veteran. I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. Today, we're going to feature an unbelievable case, a case that actually rocked the entire city back in 2006, and that was the homicide murder of a, a John Jay College graduate student by the name of Emmet Sanguian. And one of the reasons this case was so disturbing to everyone, because Emmet Sanguian was everyone in New York City. She was a, a, a young lady who was 24 years old who went out to celebrate her birthday with a friend, and she wound up getting basically kidnapped from a bar and murdered and raped and sexually abused. Uh, to tell the story of this case, I have a great detective who at the time worked in Brooklyn North Homicide, and his name is Sean McTie. And in actuality, on the 25th of this month, it will be the, the 15th anniversary of this, of this occurrence. I'm going to bring uh, Sean in to the broadcast right now. Sean, how you doing? Hey, Bill. How's it going? All right, man. Welcome to the show. I'm so uh, happy to have you here. This is going to be unbelievable. Um, th- this case involved all kinds of things in the investigative world. And um, the big thing was, was the forensic evidence and the, the, the linkage of the forensic evidence. You want to just give us a whole, an overview of the case of what actually happened? So back February 25th, 20, 2006, um, I get a call from the 7-5 squad, which was my command prior to uh, Brooklyn North Homicide. And my old partner, Mark Brooks, called me up and said, um, you know, we have, we called it a fresh one back then. I don't know if you guys in Manhattan called it the same thing. Yeah, that's what we called it, yep. <laughs> so we had a fresh one in the 7-5. Myself and Jimmy Kennedy, who was my partner in Homicide, responded. And uh, that night, it was freezing, freezing cold out. I'll never forget it. And um, they, the body was found on Fountain Avenue. And back in the day, um, there was a mall there now. Um, that's, you know, back in the day, they used to do street races on Fountain. So we go there as kids and, you know, there'd be car racing. The 75 cops would come in with, uh, they'd open the hydrants. So, you know, guys couldn't race their cars and it was, uh, just a nice place to hang out. But then it became desolate over the years. Mm-hmm. And that's when people used to go to dump garbage or hang out with your girlfriend or do drugs. And it was just a really desolate place. So. When we got over there, um, we found a body wrapped in a, um, it was like an old quilt from like a bed um, with like a floral pattern on it. Is that, that's on the screen right now, the, uh, that, that's it. That's the, and I wanted everyone to see that because that blanket uh, becomes a, a huge part of the crime scene later on. And if you just put that picture up real quick also, Bill. Uh, if you see underneath on the left, the bottom left of this picture, uh-huh. a uh, snow brush. And that's really important to the case. And we'll get to that, um, you know, in a little bit. Okay. So, obviously, it's a desolate area. No cameras really around. So, it's not much to canvas. Um, you look around the immediate crime scene, you want certain things to be gathered as evidence. Obviously, whatever's immediately around the body and anything that stands out that really isn't supposed to be there. Um, 
and there really wasn't much left to do that night. Um, we got a, it was a 911 call from the Lindenwood Diner. Now, the Lindenwood Diner is very police-friendly. We had um, gatherings there, and we used to have Sunday breakfast there in the squad. and um, So they were very helpful, whatever we needed. And unfortunately, that particular night, the camera that was facing the door, the area of where the um, telephone was, the telephone, mm-hmm. phone, the camera was not working. Uh, so we, to this day, don't know who called 911. Um, I don't think it was Little John who has ended up being the perp on this case. But uh, that alerted us to trying to figure out who one of the suspects might have been. So do a quick canvas of the area, not really much to do. And then we pretty much called it a day quickly that night. Cause so the, there was no connection that night between the missing – no. None at all. Okay. I mean, well, look, one of the things that people don't understand – uh, and that's one of the beauties of having law enforcement people on a podcast like this is that we know that investigation takes time. And we know that the public and the press have no patience whatsoever. They think a case and a person of interest is going to be pop up out of nowhere in the first few hours. And that's never the case. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So now the next day, the next step. The immediate next step, if you have nothing to do that night, is to do the autopsy the next day. So in Brooklyn North, it was usually the homicide guy that caught the case and the case detective that go to the to do the autopsy for the homicide. And the autopsy was very distinct with a lot of um, forensics that stuck out to you right away. One of them was just looking at uh, Annette. She had tan, very fresh tan lines. So it was the middle of winter in New York, so you're not getting them from here. So we, we didn't know where this girl came from, but she did look like she was on the beach within the last couple of days. And it turns out she was. She was in Florida celebrating her birthday uh, with her girlfriend, Claire. So now we go to the next step, and the Emmy's the going over anything she finds that's off with the body. And there was a big clump of hair off the one side of her that was, like, cut off or chopped off. And that seemed, that seemed very strange to me. And I concluded it was either two things. Either uh, he was trying to hide evidence, evidence such as semen or blood, or it was, like, kind of a trophy kind of thing. So uh-huh. taking victim's hair, and if he was a serial killer, maybe he took a piece of each victim, you know. Sean, just uh, to uh, enlighten our audience, and we have a lot of law enforcement people, but the, the people that aren't law enforcement, a trophy is taken by a killer so that he can relive the experience of the murder or the sexual experience at a later date, and that's Correct. why Correct. it's referred to as a trophy, just to... Uh, it's like memories for him or her, you know? Right, exactly. And then the next thing we found was um, her fingernails had been either cut off or torn off. So, in, you know, going back to our experience, a lot of the perpetrator's DNA is underneath the victim's fingernails. And that's just another sign of this person didn't want any of his DNA or evidence to be found, and that's why he decided to do that with her fingernails. And, and do, you, do you know that that to be true now? As far as... If he definitely did, I mean, yeah, yes, no, there was none of his DNA was found on anywhere on her hands whatsoever. No. Okay. So uh, the next part was 
um, she was when we found her, her face, she had a sock in her mouth and her face was taped from here to here, completely around. So not only did the sock suffocate her, the tape obviously around the whole face suffocated her as well. A lot of times, too, uh, Vic, the perpetrators cover the victim's faces if they feel any kind of guilt or remorse at some point because they don't want that person staring at them or looking at them after the death, you right. know, which we find out a lot of times happens. So just putting all these things together, she, it was unfortunately she died a brutal death. You know, her um, there was sexual assault signs. Um, it just really wasn't, you know, this poor girl didn't deserve to have happened. She was, I mean, just, there's her pictures up on the screen right now. She was a, a really beautiful girl, sort of exotic-looking girl, you know. And, yeah, uh, she was from uh, Boston, right? She's from, from Boston, Boston. Um, but she obviously, she has a Latin background. Um, she moved to New York. She was going to John Jay College, studying criminal justice. And... Um, so we find out later on, so we do the autopsy. Um, they're going to get back to us with any other, if they find any drugs in the system, if they find how much alcohol is in the system. And we were later told there was a tremendous amount of alcohol she had in her system, which was indicative of her going out the night before. Right. So the next day we get a phone call. We're now, we're in the 75 squad and a family friend, realizes that Ahmed hasn't been in contact with anybody in a couple of days now. So they're concerned, this person that's in the newspaper now, and it was just a generic report, you know, 7-5 had a homicide and a girl was found, you know, on Fountain Avenue. They were worried this might be their family friend. <clears throat> so we have her come in, we show her a picture of Ahmed, and she makes a positive ID. That is definitely Ahmed. So now we can't find out, I can't find out, and you can't find out who killed you unless I know who you are. Because i got to right. find everything I can about you and then going forward. So now we know it's a Met Sangin. We start talking to all the family members to backtrack her steps. <clears throat> and the family had told us that she just got back from Florida, which explained the tan lines. And she went out the night before with her girlfriend, Claire Higgins. And the, Claire and the Met had this little, like, uh, it was like a little book of all the bars in Manhattan. And each weekend they would pick a different bar or restaurant to go to, and they'd check it off their list. So that particular night they went to the Pioneer Bar in Lower Manhattan, and they were hanging out with a bunch of friends. A bunch, a bunch of different people met, met up with them. But now it's getting late. They just got back from Florida, and Claire is exhausted. She wants to go home, and Met is having a good time. She doesn't want to leave. So, unfortunately, Claire <clears throat> leaves her at that, out, right outside the Pioneer Bar. All right, Sean, can I just stop you right there? I just want to shout out to our live chatters, Joyce, 12-Step Woman, MC's Audio, Edward Kelly, thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. Duty Ron, Ryan Investigative Group, Michella <clears throat> Pranzo, where's Pete? I don't see Pete tonight. Uh, Black Rose, Larry Bennett, Jeffrey Brzezinski, Huda Ali, thank you guys, all you guys for uh, watching this. This is a fantastic case, and uh, I want to get back now uh, to, to Sean uh, talking about the case. Go back to it, Sean. So now um, she's asking Ahmed, let's go home, let's go home. Ahmed doesn't want to go home. 
She then gets in a cab and unfortunately leaves. <clears throat> and that starts walking away from the Pioneer Barnum. So now we have a general idea of, from after talking to Claire, where she went, but we don't know where she went. And it wasn't until two days later when we got Annette's financials back. And then we found uh, she bought two rum and cokes in a bar called the Falls Bar. The Falls the, those, Bar. Those were, those were Annette's financials. Correct. So that's, that's pretty damn fast to get that back too, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was uh, very fast. Yeah, because I, I've worked on homicides before. I've never heard getting the financials back that quickly. That's pretty amazing. So luckily, she bought those two rum and cokes with her debit card. Otherwise, if she paid cash, we might never know where she went. You know? Right, right. <clears throat> so now now we move our attention away from the Pioneer towards the Falls Bar. Now, the Falls Bar is owned by Danny Dorian. Danny Dorian's father owned Dorian's Red Hand in, I believe it's Upper Manhattan, back in the 80s, where uh, Robert Chambers killed Jennifer Levin after leaving that bar. Right. On, on the screen right now, we have a, a picture of the jet setter, uh, Danny Dorian, who uh, That's him. Hurt, the, hurt this case a great deal by uh, not telling the truth right away. So now we're focusing on the Falls Bar. We're talking to everybody. We're talking to the waitresses. We're talking to the bouncers. We're talking to the bartenders. We're talking to the busboys. We're talking to the overnight cleaners. They just come in and clean and leave. And nobody admits to seeing a met in the bar initially. So that kind of that kind of stalled us. We know she was there, but we don't know what where to go to next. Right. So now the next step is it's Lower Manhattan. There's obviously a lot of bars, restaurants, and businesses. We start doing a video campus. And when I tell you we had so many detectives helping us out, and that's the shittiest part of any investigation is a canvas, whether you're knocking on doors in the box, doing video. Sean, let me just interrupt you for one second. Now, just for our listeners, so you know, um, the, the, the precinct or the area that catches the case is where the body is recovered, unless there's information that the person was killed at a certain location and dumped there. So the 7-5 precinct in Brooklyn is the precinct that um, caught this case, and Sean is from Brooklyn North Homicide. Had they been able to prove that the murder occurred at some other location, that may have been, you know, that may have been considered the area where the homicide occurred. But So the 7-5 is in Manhattan doing their canvas. I'm sure you had Manhattan South precincts and Manhattan South Homicide assisting oh, you guys. Yeah, then we, now we start getting major case involved, and the late great buddy Manane was coming in, and he was running the uh, command log. And all right, we're sending these two guys to you covering this area to do canvases. You, you got, and then every tip that came in, two guys from a different precinct were going out on the tips. So it was, I mean, we had at some point we had hundreds of detectives working on this case. You know? And Sean, this was a a huge, huge press case, correct? Yeah, all of a sudden it got legs, and I think it was because of Dorian's connection. So okay. it was established that it happened at the Falls, and it was Dorian and then Dorian from back with Robert Chambers. It kind of like grew legs, and all of a sudden it was in the paper every single day. Every day it was in the And paper. also when they discovered that she was a graduate student from John Jay College, that right. also added some... So, yeah, innocent victim, um, was never in trouble, you know... It's the, the classic, you know, you could write a movie about this murder. 
you know. Right. So then um, doing the canvas, and we're actually, myself and Kennedy are out doing one of the canvases. If you get a phone call, <clears throat> go right to 1PP. Don't stop whatever you're doing and get into headquarters and chief of detective's office. So I'm thinking, all right, the guy turned himself in. This is fantastic. Case is <laughs> and it ended up being Danny Dorian and his attorney, who was from Giuliani Partners. So Dorian's sister was married to this particular attorney, and that's how that was the connection with uh, Giuliani's law firm. So wasn't that? Did he feel guilty that he didn't uh, do the right thing right away, or was he was afraid for his well, self-interest? Then you know, once we were looking at the false bar, we go in there for with a search warrant for, you know, we know what was found on her. So we'll look, he, in his basement, we're looking for zip ties or, or duct tape or anything that could be had been used in this murder that could have came from the false bar. So we never found any of it, but he had ended up not conf- Dorian didn't confess to doing anything wrong, but he confessed that he mis- misled us. So now, it, within, in presence of his attorney, he tells us that he did see a met in the bar that night. He did remember her ordering two drinks, but it was closing time, so he wanted her to get out of the bar. And he told Daryl Littlejohn, who was one of the bouncers at the time, to walk her out. So that's Daryl, and he is him. He had There was two guys. They were bouncing at that bar, off the books, and they had a car out front. And they would show, like, bulletproof vests to people or handcuffs and U.S. Marshal jackets, flashlights, pretending – they were telling everybody they were, like, U.S. Marshals or bounty hunters, and they were just trying to show off to everybody. But meanwhile, Little John is a career criminal almost his whole life he's been in jail. Right, which, Sean, makes it so much more egregious that this career criminal who committed seven, I, I believe, violent felonies, yeah. he was out on parole – and he was hired to be a bouncer in a bar without any background check whatsoever. So actually, at the end of this case, the St. Keenan family played a big role in changing legislation to make restaurant and bar owners do background checks. So none of the, so something like this wouldn't happen, you know, again. Well, usually the only requirement to be a bouncer is, you know, Gold's Gym sweatshirt or, you know, uh, You'll be gigantic and stupid. You know, that's the basically the requirements to be a bouncer, you know. But I never heard of anyone, uh, I don't know for sure, but that was a parolee being hired as a bouncer in uh, an upscale bar. That's that's just great, you know. And it was a nice place. It was a really nice bar. It was brand new. And um, so it was a nice place for the local people to go and hang out, you know. So now we, after talking to, to Dorian, he, now he puts Little John with her out the front door. So now, <clears throat> obviously, we focused on everybody. We took DNA from everybody in the bar, including the women. And Little John was the only guy that was hesitant. And he told other people at the bar, eh, I don't want to give my DNA. I'm not doing this. This is BS. So when one of the guys told us that, that raises the red flag. Why is this guy? Nobody else cares about giving up their DNA, but this guy has a problem with it. Right. So <clears throat> we end up letting Dorian go. He has really nothing left to do with this. We start concentrating on Little John, and we start surveilling Little John. Now, Little John had two vehicles that we know he used. He had a 
old like a Ford Windstar minivan, and then he had a cargo van. Remember the back in the day, the ladder on the back of the yes, mm-hmm. the big wheel like the spare tire. It was like a family vacation ba- uh, van. He had that parked at his house. Well, the minivan all of a sudden he stopped taking to work because the people that worked there said, "Oh yeah, he used to drive this car and he doesn't bring it in anymore." So myself and Kennedy follow him leave one night, and he goes down to the subway down the block from the bar. So we confront him, and we say, hey, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm going home. I said, well, where's home? And he says, you know, Jamaica, Queens. He says, well, how do you get there? Now, if I work in Manhattan and I live in the Bronx, I know the routes I have to take to work. Back right. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what train he's getting off after lower Manhattan. Like, so if he jumps on the two or the three, he's not, he doesn't know where he's changing. He doesn't know what train he's taking from Jamaica Station or if he can walk from Jamaica Station. So we could, something's up with that now. So this particular case had so many little pieces that we had to put together. Right. So now, is that detail that great on solving the case? No. But it's something to keep in the back of our mind. Hey, he doesn't know where he's going now. Why is he not driving anymore? And oh, were, well, he, for our listeners, he doesn't know where he's going because he never, ever took the subway before. Right? So we saw, you know, until this case happened. Once he knew we were looking at the bar, he stopped taking the car. Right. Now, the Queens Precinct found his minivan that he took to work every day five blocks away from his house. There's another little thing. Why aren't you parking in front of your house? Why would you park your car that you drove every day five blocks away? So... Um, I don't know if you could explain to the listeners about how crime scenes work and you have A runs and B runs and C runs. You can explain that to them if you'd like. So <laughs> the initial crime scene, we get a number. So say one, two, three. And that would be the scene on Fountain Avenue with the Mets body. Now, if it was a shooting and it happened in a car, we bring the car to the precinct, let it sit overnight, and then let crime scene come back the next day and do uh, fingerprints and um DNA, hair and fiber, all that kind of thing, where it's in the better elements, it's in better condition in a garage. So this particular case, <clears throat> crime scene, the A run, and it gets a letter. So now it'd be 123A, and then 123B, and so forth. So every time we had something new that we came across, this particular case went all the way through the alphabet into double letters. Wow. So between the car that we found. Then we we found we did the cargo van that was in the back of his house. Then each time we had to do something new in the house, whether it was, you know, the footprints in the driveway or the the coats in the closet or the sink. You know, every time we had to do something new, it was a different crime scene run. So it was tremendous, tremendous about it. Each piece of evidence was little, but it was all tied into, you know, it was very important to our case. Well, and, and Sean, we'll just let people know, our listeners, how good the NYPD crime scene unit is. Oh, that's that's their job. That's all they do is respond to scenes and collect evidence. Whereas, you know, smaller departments, they may have the individual detective actually uh, collect the evidence. But right. in NYPD, we have professional detectives, sergeants, lieutenants that respond to these scenes, and they do an amazing, amazing job. Oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, especially too with DNA now. It's like how do you how do you find something so minuscule? And it means the most of the whole case. Like that ended up breaking the whole case wide open down the road. So now we're doing different uh, search warrants on the house. We're gathering different evidences. 
So with the in retrospect with the car, the minivan, we never found any of Met's DNA in the car. But on the Met and around the Met, we later on found Little John's DNA and different things from the house. So on that picture when she was in the cart in the quilt, <clears throat> that wooden stick that was underneath her was a old snowbrush. Little John's DNA ended up being on that snowbrush. So right then and there, that puts him on the scene. He might not have killed her, but it puts her on, puts him at, at the very least dumping the body, right? Absolutely. And you know, we some of this evidence, even though it doesn't directly what we call it is um, circumstantial evidence. But when you have a huge, huge amount of circumstantial evidence, it, it becomes very, very powerful. Very right. powerful. So now on the tape that was around her face, there was uh, carpet fibers from his house and uh, mink and rabbit hair. So on the, on the collars of winter jackets, they'd be a fur collar. This particular specific hair was found that was from his house and his closet back on the body. So that means now we know that she was at his house at some point. And that's all that stuff is called uh, for us people that are crime buffs. It's it's evidence linkage and cross cross contamination. Correct. Whereas it's powerful to have his evidence on her, but it's also very powerful to have her evidence in his house, which is right. just very very powerful. As you know, Sean. Let me just again shout out to some of our um, sure. Vinny Flores. Thank you for the five dollar super chat. Huda Ali, Janine Goodwin, Matt Sully. Uh, Duty Ron, of course, who's uh, helping me out with my podcast. Uh, Black Rose, 12-Step Woman, Jeffrey Brzezinski, and Rachella and Peter Pranzo are both here, two of our biggest fans. Lieutenant Pete, a legend on the NYPD. Uh, Black Rose, uh, Larry Bennett, Huda Ali, Bobby Geis. Thank you so much, Bobby. Bobby was uh, on an episode uh, of The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery for a double murder that occurred in the 2-4. I was the anti-crime sergeant back then, and Bobby did a fantastic job solving that case uh, back a long time ago, early, early 90s. Um, G. Ginger, 321, Huda Ali, and uh, thank you guys for watching. Joe Clark, Diane B., John Druin, Bonnie Google, Michelle Serino, Bobby Murphy, Boxing MMA, Candy Scarrett, Thank you guys all. I, I, if I missed anyone, oh, Ron Schindel, Deputy Inspector Ron Schindel, who's now a Deputy Inspector with the Port Authority Police. He retired from our job. All right, let's get back to the case. I shouted out enough to our fans. Shout out to Bobby Murphy, my old partner from JTTF. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad we're getting people together here. And our kids play baseball together. Very good ball players. Excellent. So um, another big piece of, I don't know, you would call it digital evidence, was the cell phone records. Yes. So uh, we did cell site information on Little John's phone, and the 24-hour the, the period of when Emmett's body was found, we have him obviously at the Falls Bar. We have him back at his house in Queens. And then right before the body was found, we have him on the Bell Parkway driving westbound. We have him at Fountain Avenue. And we have a witness that sees him on the phone. And I will get into that, you know, after this. 
back driving eastbound on the Bell Parkway and then back at his house. So not only does the snow brush put him at the crime scene, but the cell phone records put him at the crime scene. So I was at You know, Sean, it, I mean, I so appreciate the unbelievable work you guys did and listening to the thoroughness. And it's so important because this is going to be a huge case and it's going to be a huge prosecution. And you want to cross your T's and dot your I's. So, you know, it's so important. But the Taru phone guys were fantastic. And uh, I believe back then it was John Ross and uh, Peterman was the other guy. It was John's partner. And they had charts. Oh, yeah, yeah, J- uh, Jesse Peterman. And they had charts yeah. in our captain's room. And they linked, you know, everywhere where the cell phone was. They, I mean, they spent hours and hours and hours analyzing this stuff. And then, obviously, the, the call of detail, we find out who is he calling, who is he talking to. And he's on the phone on the Bell Parkway with the next girlfriend of his. Sandra Smith was her name. So once we identify who was on that phone call, we go talk to her. And she admits they had a conversation, and he asked her to be an alibi for him. He, he said, if anybody asked that I had your car and I was driving your car, so nobody would put him in the minivan. They would put him in her Chrysler Sebring, I, I think it was the car that she had. You know, Sean, I love, I love this because – it shows what I always talk about. I used to t- talk about this when I taught at CIC. I used to talk about it when I taught in college is that when you ask questions, you get answers. And when you get answers, that makes more questions. And one of the best ways the Asava homicide is through interview and interrogation. The more people you speak to, it just creates so much more evidence in getting the little bits of the story. And without taking the time, to go over those records diligently like the Taru guys did and then figuring out who's the most important person to talk to, then, you know, we wouldn't be able to do the interview. So, you know, everybody played a huge part in this whole case. So we interview her and then um, now it was on the news every night at this point, right? So now a girl is watching the news. I'm not going to say her name. She was part of another case. She Watch is watching the, the news and she sees the, the cargo van with the ladder on the back of it and said, that's the van that abducted me. So now she reaches out to us and we interview her. Sure enough, she got it. He pretended he was a U.S. Marshal. He pretended he was stopping her for questioning. He put her in handcuffs and threw her in the van. And this was his M.O. So we know for sure of two other girls that he, one, he definitely raped and took back to her his house because the the girl who was released then after she got raped, he put uh, his mother's T-shirt on her. Right. So we found Daryl Little John's mother's DNA on that victim's T-shirt. And then the second girl, the girl in the photo that's testifying, she was handcuffed. She was in his van, and she kicks the door out of the van as it's driving. And she rolls out the van. People come to help her, and he stopped initially to try to get her back in the van. But then um, the people came to her aid. He took off the handcuffs that she was on, that she was in, had his DNA on it. So now we tied those two. And, and Sean, were these, uh, these were flex cuffs? No, handcuffs. Right? Oh, these were actual handcuffs. Okay. So when I ended up arresting him and I doubted his property, and he had a set of keys, and he had a handcuff key on his keychain 
that, even though, is it that big of a deal? No. But it's just another little piece that ties into him handcuffing. His, his MO is handcuffing girls and kidnapping them. Right. So I'm not sure, even to this day, I'm not sure if Annette got in the van willingly, like he was giving her a ride home, or he forcefully threw her in the van, or she was so intoxicated she passed out in the van. You know, I had, Sean, I had read some reports, and I don't know if it's true because nothing that the press reports you can take as the truth, but that there was some yelling on uh, by the falls of Met was yelling at Daryl Littlejohn. I don't know if that was ever verified, if that's in fact true, or just something that the press reported. Well, in the bar, uh, Met and Daryl had an argument, and it was about law enforcement and race, and he, she actually lied and said she was with the FBI. He lied and said he was with the U.S. Marshals. So they were arguing about, I guess, federal agencies. I'm not sure. Right. And then race came into play, and that's – we definitely know they were arguing about that because the people in the bar confirmed that. Um, there were reporters everywhere in the in the neighborhood the day after, and a couple of the, the local bums were approached and interviewed – now, whether they actually saw something, we never verified anything that they saw or said to the press. But maybe they wanted five minutes of fame of talking to the press and being on the news. Right. So they said whatever they said to the reporters, but nothing that they said was ever verified. You know, I, I, I've worked some uh, very big homicides in my police career myself. And sometimes the press can help you, and sometimes they can be a huge uh, detriment to you. Because... I mean, it seems that our job bends over backwards to be transparent to the press, and that doesn't always help the case. What What were your feelings in, toward the press on this case? So it was actually a big problem in this case. Um, I never understood. I understand putting details out in the papers, right, if, we, if we're looking for somebody. But if we're investigating a case, I don't want anybody else to know particular information. I don't understand why people way above my pay grade have the need to talk to the press and tell them details about right, it. Right, right. It doesn't help anybody. And unless you're getting a ton of money for it, and I don't know anybody that does. So I can't. I just can't see that how it benefits the case. And if you're um, trying to help this poor woman's murder, it doesn't benefit by putting that information out there. And now the perp knows what we know. And maybe we don't want him to know that. Maybe right, absolutely. We don't want him to know that we find out, and then we can surprise him on it when we interrogate him. So, you know, Sean, I, I felt the same way. I never understood why the department uh, released all that information. And, you know, the, the thing is, a lot of times I always felt that they didn't – the reasoning I could think was that they didn't have to go on the stand and testify. The detectives did, you oh, know, oh. and it made their job so much harder – to do when when the higher ups on the police department released all of this information, you know. Listen, if there's a tattoo of a girl on her arm and we don't know who the girl is, you put the picture out there in the paper so maybe somebody would identify her. But that's helpful to the case, not giving out details that would help the perp and help him know what we know. That just doesn't make sense to me, you know. No, but I think it's just part of the uh, transparency that the police department. Uh, public relations wise, you know, right. I, I mean, I always, I always thought that, you know, uh, the press was not our friends and I still believe that to this day, you know. No, definitely. So now, um, 
we have the two girls. We have, you know, the MO of what he usually does. And now he's under 24-hour surveillance. Now Intel is involved in the case, and they're, they're surveillancing him. And we're still trying to build our case. We're still trying to gather more evidence. And it was decided way – it was not my decision because I wasn't ready, but it was way above my pay grade again. They decided to bring him in. So they scooped him up, and he brought him to the 7-5. And myself and Jimmy Kennedy talked to Daryl probably a total of 16 hours over two days. Did he Did he try to lawyer up right away or no? No, not at all. Now, this was a career criminal. This was a guy that got locked up by the feds, and I, I think he was some sort of a CI for the feds. Uh-huh. Had a bank robbery uh, conviction, and he reached out to a – before we scooped him up, he reached out to a federal agent to try to, I guess, broker something, and it never just never panned out. The guy uh, – he came in, and we allowed him to talk to him, but – Nothing ever came out. Well, get out of jail. Free cards aren't good for uh, serial rapes or murders. They just right. they just don't work, you know. <laughs> um, so now we're talking to him, and when I first became a detective, I wanted everything. I wanted how'd you do it? Where's the murder weapon? You know, where'd you throw it after you did it? The whole nine yards. And then I was taught by senior detectives to me that you don't always need everything. But you definitely need to put the guy there. Right. So my goal in his interview was to just put him with the Met outside of the bar. And I even, like, you know, just talk to him about, hey, man, maybe you guys hooked up. Maybe something happened and you were having sex and she had a heart attack and you didn't know what to do. You flipped out and you were scared. You know, you're a career criminal. You didn't want to get in trouble. Whatever the case may be. But – he would not budge off his story, and you know, I was always—I'm always the guy that I have no problem giving you cigarettes, water, food. The twenty-five bucks it cost me to to treat you like a king, and under the circumstances that you're in, I'm tripling that in overtime. So right, of course, of course. <laughs> I never understood the guys that didn't want to give him a cigarette or didn't want to give him water. Like, you want this guy to talk to you, so you right, exactly. Him, you know? So, Sean, let me just give a shout-out again to our, uh, our live chatters. Soldier Girl, thank you so much. Duty Ron. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Miss Angela. Uh, Larry Bennett, Ryan Investigation. This is an amazing case, and this is one of the detectives that worked on this amazing case. And um, let, let me stop talking and let him get back to his story. Um. And I just tried the compassion route. I, can put, I put my hand on his chest, and I said, listen, bro, if it was an accident, it was an accident. We, we'll figure it out. But, you know, and he just he would not come clean. So he did say all the things he – what he wanted to tell us he was doing. So he went to visit his mother in the nursing home, or he was with um, Sandra in, in the Sebring, and all these different things to try to divert us from what he actually did. And we went to the nursing home, and he was not on camera, and he was not in the visitor log. And we went to talk to Sandra, and she said, he told me to tell you this. So, she, like, every alibi he tried to give was refuted. So more excellent circumstantial evidence. Exactly. There was just yeah. a ton, a ton, a ton of circumstantial evidence. So the decision was that night, so the next day after, he, you know, no confession, 
it was, he was to be held on a parole violation because he was not allowed to work in a bar and be out that late on parole. So he was held under, under the violation, and then luckily we had that because what happens now, we bring him in. I never, ever want to bring a guy in and have him walk out the door. Like it just – I would never bring a guy in unless I knew I had him. You know, Sean, I 100% agree with you, and a lot of times I always felt that the big bosses – had to listen to the detectives. And a lot of times they just overrode okay. what the detectives said and did it and, and, and hurt the case lots of times. You know, uh, for example, like picking him up, you guys weren't really ready. You didn't have enough stuff to challenge the lies he was going to tell you with yet. You know, did you ever get the video of the walk Ahmet Sanguin took from the Pioneer to the Falls? No. There was no useful video with that. Now, now, going back to try that endeavor, if we did find a place, then you had to call Taru, then they had to come and download it. I mean, we're talking hours and hours and hours of monotonous police work, but it had to be done. But it just nothing ever panned out on any of the um, the surveillance videos, even in front of the folds. I wish we had video of how she got into the car. Right. Oh, but we don't. We don't know. You know, and a lot of times, too, in these major investigations, every time the press sneezes, the police department wants to find out what did they find out. Now, we got to look into what these, these idiots found out as if they're on the case, you know. And the problem, too, is there's a lot of pressure. If it's in the media and it's in the papers every day, that the brass wants the case solved. And I get it. Right. That, but I'd rather a good case solved than just to make an arrest and then the guy walks and then it's all for naught, you know. So he's held on the parole violation, and then we end up uh, getting a, a phone call from the lab. So her hands were tied behind her back with the plastic zip ties. And in the crevice in the chamber that the zip tie goes was a droplet of blood that obviously you couldn't see with the naked eye. But the great job that the, the, the uh, lab did for this case – um, they found his DNA, and at that moment, we were off to the races, dropped a uh, grand jury, got an indictment on him, and then we were ready to go to trial. But in, in between you going to trial, didn't he go on trial for one of the rapes? So we did the Queen's case first, and that was a decision made between the two prosecutors in Brooklyn and Queens. And... I guess the main decision was, obviously, we were still looking into evidence for our case, and all the Queen's evidence was there already. So uh -huh. you had the witness that could testify. You had the DNA and the handcuffs. So that case was good to go, and um, and then we did that case first. And he got he actually got convicted on the Queen's case first. So he got, he got 25 to life on the Queen's case, the Queen's right? That's correct. So now, I mean – no one so would be satisfied off of us prosecuting this case, but you still want justice for the family. You still want it to do the right thing. So um, we presented the best case that we could. And Ken Tao of the Kings County DA's office did a phenomenal job putting that together. Of course. I mean, you always want there to be a conviction uh, on the murder case, even though he got 25 to life on the rape case, because this case – this case really did, I mean, you, you can say it lightly, but this case shook the whole city. It really did. 
I never saw a case in the papers so much. Every day, every day, on the news, in the papers, on the news, in the papers. Because you know what? It was like she was every girl USA. Yeah, it was everybody's daughter. So yeah, going out for a couple of drinks, maybe had a little bit too much to drink. And, you know, some savage parolee, you know, preyed upon her. Right. And, you know, that in 2006, the city, New York City, bragged about being the safest large city in the country. Right. And back then it was. It's not true now. Now you got parolees and people getting arrested and they're out two hours later, you know, so you have more potential for the Daryl Little Johns of this world to roam, the, you know, roam the streets. The thing, like, she could have went to any other bar. She could have picked any other place in that area. And she, unfortunately, she went in that place. Like, you know, when they say time is everything, it's also in the in the bad way. Time is everything. And she was in a, definitely the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, that's why I think that uh, the culpability of uh, Danny Dorian is his lies, uh, you know, set the case back and yeah. could have really hurt the case so, to the point where it wouldn't have gotten solved. Definitely for a week, at least a week or so, for sure. Uh, yeah. That's back big time. And the thing was, I think he was uh, he was thinking selfishly about his his business and not about poor Emet Sanguin. And what's to say, because of all that time, we wouldn't have recovered evidence from Little John's house? Right. He could have lit the house on fire. Who knows? You know. He was cleaning up the crime scene. He was yeah. trying to get rid of evidence. Look, look at what he when you discovered from the autopsy. He probably tried to remove DNA evidence from underneath the fingernails. Oh no! I mean, because he's a career criminal and he's a, you know he's he's a mutt you know and uh, he he was raised by the system you know. And every crime he committed, he got smarter and smarter. Yeah. It's it's so – so when it went to trial, uh, how long did the uh, trial last? It was about two weeks, 10 days to two weeks. There was a lot of uh -huh. people on all the – you know, you had the phone people. You had the Emmys office. You had the lab. You had uh, Claire Higgins. You had uh, the victim of um, the other case. So it was just uh, – you know, so many people to put on, you know. Right, right. I'm going to try to play, play a little video here. Let me see. I'm new to StreamYard. Let me see if I can get it to go. They say DNA evidence links this New York City nightclub bouncer to the 2006 murder of a 24-year-old grad student. Emet Sanguillan left this Manhattan bar early on the morning of February 24, 2006. The next morning, her nude body was found in a desolate section of Brooklyn. Her mouth was stuffed with a white sock and taped shut, her hands bound behind her back with a plastic tie. At Monday's opening of a rape and murder trial... I don't know if you're seeing it. Yep, it's Ken Taub right there. He's the prosecutor. Okay. Let's... Uh... Let me add it again. Out of the bar. And they say his cell phone was used in the area near where the body was dumped the day after the killing. Little John's lawyer says her client was framed. She points the finger at a politically connected witness who was also in the bar that night. Sophia Manos, The Associated Press. You know, one of the things also, um, uh, Sean, was that because Danny Dorian lied, he became a convenient suspect for the defense. Absolutely. They were going to claim, oh, he's the killer, not this 
career criminal bouncer who's a serial rapist also. Right. He's innocent. He's being picked on because he's, you know, whatever, because of his race or whatever reason, not because. Because he has privilege. He has money, comes from a wealthy family, owns a bar, doesn't want his bar to be ruined. Doesn't right. Reputation to be ruined like his father's bar was from um, Chambers and Jennifer Levin. So he had every reason to divert us out of being in that bar. You know, there's a lot of um, areas where the, they could have really benefited from vetting security guards better than they do. You know, and that's the nature of security is that no one wants to pay for security. So, oh, you don't want to pay? Okay, so we'll pay the security guard seven an hour. But you know what you're going to get with a $7 an hour security guard? Right. Yes, he's got a record. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, he can't be trusted. No. And uh, he's un, you know, he's unswearable. So, but that's, that's the nature of security, you know. It's crazy. Did you meet um, Emet Sengian's family during this? I did. I became very close with the family. Um, this, the brother um, ends up being a Boston cop. And I became obviously friendly with him because we're both in law enforcement. I keep in touch with the family on the anniversary. It's just a terrible thing that you have to relive every February, you know. Yeah. Um, I met I met sister Alejandro is a big political figure now in Massachusetts, so she's trying to make changes and she's trying to do the right thing in in in, um, in her genre and in her local, you know. Um, district that she represents so you know the family tried to move on uh, as best they could and it's just a terrible thing to have the parents go through this with their daughter you know you know it's like uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show uh, the 25th of this month is the 15 year anniversary uh, yeah. of this murder and when you think about this beautiful girl Amet Sanguin she would have accomplished amazing things with her life and you know this uh it seems like now uh and you know i i don't want to get political but i always wind up getting a little bit political is right. that people want to do more for criminals than they do for people that are achievers on this on this sure. earth you know sure definitely no question about it and you know if you put people out on the street like this guy you know it's uh Things like this are bound to happen. You well, know, look, we're seeing it in our city right now, you know. He did it twice before that we know of. How many times that we don't know of that he did it? That he got away with it, yeah. Right. So, Huda Ali, thank you so much for the five-pound super chat. I don't know what pounds are. Is that from England? Is that from uh, – but thank you very much anyway. Thank you for the five-pound super chat. This is so such a fascinating case, and when law enforcement comes together, you know, I, I – Almost never knew any case in New York City that was a press case, so that was a huge case that went unsolved. Can you think of one? Um, I don't think so. But another thing to add, uh, Bill, is for any active guys that are listening to this, anything that you do outside of the case can also affect the case. And in my particular instance, Remember when um, the city hall was cracking down on the parking plaques? Yes. So my got my car got towed. I was testifying in grand jury on a separate homicide, and my car got towed from court. And because the cars and the plaques were limited in the precincts, I take the I took the parking plaque and I made a photocopy of it. 
and I kept that in my personal car, and I used that. Because we covered temp races in Homicide. You cover the court. You go to Central Booking. So you just had to be all over Brooklyn. So I kept a copy of the parking plaque on my car. So when my car gets towed, IEB sergeant standing in the pound with the plaque in a voucher bag under his arm. Oh, God. You know, next thing you know, I'm getting suspended for having this copy of a plaque. So long story short, to tie it into how it could affect the case, the first thing that all the defense attorneys, including Queens, and now the Queens case happened so much after I got suspended that I asked the DA, do you want to bring it up? And he goes, nah, don't worry about it. First question the DA, the defense attorney asks is, when you suspend it from the police department? So if he copied a plaque, ladies and gentlemen, what else could he doctor any evidence? And that That's right. It shows dishonesty. That's your rap sheet, you know? So you just have to take into account anything you would do on the outside. You never know if it gets brought into a case. And fortunately, it didn't hurt us in any of the cases because it would be explained, and obviously we have tremendous evidence on the other end. Right. But it's just something for active guys to think about, like, hey, you know, some, this could bite me in the ass in some way or the other. Maybe, you know. Well, I don't know. Have you seen recently they they now publish the CCRB thing on a website? In fact, I pulled up mine. I had like nine of them. I didn't even know I had that many. And I was looking, I was looking at them and laughing. I was like, oh, I didn't even know I did that, you know. Yeah. I slapped somebody. I don't know who it was. But, you know, I guess he deserved it because it was found unfounded. Yeah. And then I remember one time we did a search warrant. And we searched this filthy, disgusting apartment. They made a complaint that we we messed up their apartment. And I said to the CCLB investigators, they, go, they had roaches the size of cats. Are you kidding me? If anything, right. we could. We we scudded all the roaches around, you know. Right. <laughs> but it, it's really it's really really crazy. But that's you know cops now, especially with video and everything, they're like an open book. Everything is out there, you know. Definitely. But it, you know, at the, in the end of the day, if you are able to put the guy away and then sit with the family and give them some type of closure, all the hours you put in, all the days and missing family events and not sleeping and it's all worth it in the end for the family you know you know sean it's it's amazing uh and i i talk about it to people that aren't in this business and i say you know my i did almost 27 years i did 26 years nine and a half months exactly and i used to say that you know my my last 10 years on the job i walked around like a zombie because i never slept i was always working you know overtime and i taught college part-time and I was the Sergeant's Benevolent Association delegate. So I wore many hats. And I'm sure you did the same thing. Yeah. And you realize when you live like that, you eat poorly. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't get enough exercise. You're eating pizza at 2 in the morning, you know, when you shouldn't be, you know, Chinese food at 3, you know. And it's we call it the cop diet, you know. And the first thing probably you want to do once you retire is to try to drop a few pounds, right? Right. Definitely. Definitely. But people have the misconception that, you know, we worked super hard on this case differently than any other case, and that's definitely not true. I took every case that I had, and any detective I worked with can say the same thing about themselves. You take the street drug dealer, the baby murder, or this particular case, you work just as hard in every single case. There's no, there's no case you say, ah, I'm letting that one go. A hundred percent. But, you know, Sean, the only big motivator that you had and detectives have is overtime. 
And besides the pride of doing your work, but if they take overtime away, guys are going to be like, oh, you're sending me home at 4 o'clock? See you, right? I mean, because yeah. yeah. as many people know, good police work costs money, yeah. you know? Doing that in the squads now. Guys who catch the case on 8 to 4 gets pushed over to the 4 to 12. Right. And, like, you think guys are going to get – I remember the first thing my team did in Homicide Squad as soon as they went on overtime, what do you think the first thing they did was? Fill out the overtime slip. No, no. I'm saying the first thing they did once – after 4 o'clock they went on overtime. What's the first thing they did? I don't know. Tell me. They went out to eat. What do you mean you don't, don't know? know? You know. They went out to eat because food tastes much better at $100 an hour for a first-grade detective, true. right? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Come on, I had to pull that one out of you? Uh, <laughs> I had to read I your Miranda. Thinking, I was thinking <laughs> on the other end because we also got thirsty. You know what I mean? That's right, that too. Now, forget it. You can't even go have a taste anymore. No. You know? They'll be all over you. But it's uh, – is there – I mean, this, this was a, an amazing case, and I was proud of the NYPD, and I didn't even work on this case. I was proud of my fellow brethren on the NYPD that you guys did such an amazing job, yeah. you know, because these are the cases that make make cops, the real cops, uh, show who they are, you know. And there's so much pride in doing a great job with this. And look at all the aspects you had of this case, you know. You had the interview interrogation here, the canvases. When you talk about the crime scene, too, there was like four or five different crime scenes on this, right? Oh, yeah. You had his, you had his van, you had the house you in had Queens. The two vans. You had the house, you had the upstairs of the house and the apartment in the basement. You had the Falls Bar. Um, so that right there is five crime scenes, uh, right? And then of course the body. Yeah, the body is a crime scene, and so is that blanket that it was wrapped in. So I mean, all those things, forensically... I mean, we uh, were back on that blanket. We were going back to the tag on the quilt. I think the blanket was made in like 1970-something. And we were going back to the manufacturers to try to trace where it got delivered. Unbelievable, right? We were just doing everything we could to try to find any type of clue to help this young girl. You know, know, I also read, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was semen on it, but it didn't belong to him. It was belonged to his brother. That was his brother. So it matched the family, but it was definitely, it wasn't him. It was uh, little John's brother. Again, great circumstantial evidence. Yes, not him, but how did his brother's semen get on this point? I mean, there were so many different facets of this case that every investigator needs, you know, help to work the case. The only thing I didn't think we didn't have on this case was the phone call. They, you know, this is the perp, and, you know, sometimes you get a tip like that and it breaks the case wide open. I think that's the only thing we didn't get was the uh, anonymous phone call or the 1-800-TIPS, uh, you know, right. uh-huh. out to people. But otherwise, you name it, it had a, a little piece of this case that you put them all together, it worked for a great uh, investigation. But, you know, you had a you had a boatload of physical evidence, uh, even though a lot of it was circumstantial. It was like but, a telephone book when the lab and the ME went to testify, and they brought like a book this much of documents uh, of all the evidence that was retrieved. It's incredible. And just think about, to our listeners, um, sorting through all this evidence and making sense yeah. of it. I, I would imagine that this – Brooklyn prosecutor was an outstanding prosecutor because he uh, 
he seemed like he did an outstanding uh, job. He, he was the head. He was the head of the homicide bureau at the time. So he took oh. himself. Uh, I at the time, the only cases he would try himself were either the high-profile cases or the police, uh, the police homicides. Police homicides. Yeah. No, he seemed like he was uh, outstanding. Um, is there anyone on this case that uh, you want to shout out to, or? Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody from the 75 squad and Brooklyn North Homicide and all the outside commands that came in every night, who wants to get notified that they got to fly into lower Manhattan from, you know, the 8-1, that they got to do a video canvas for four hours, you know? Right, right. So just every particular, everybody that worked in the case, the major case, the major uh, case guys, they coordinated uh, efforts on sending guys out, because I... No, I can't run the case if I'm telling people where to go and what to do, and I'm logging everything in. So those guys were a big help, especially with Buddy Manane, and, you know, he took that off our plate, and we could focus on what we had to focus on, you know. You're, you're referring to uh, Buddy Manane, the major case sergeant yeah. that was what basically – phenomenal, phenomenal. He did like 40 years on the job, right? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, after he retired, he didn't live very long, right, yeah. which was a real shock right. to everyone. I've never heard anyone ever say anything bad about that guy. Everyone no, loves that guy, no, you know. And, uh, I mean, even Duty Ron, who's listening, he had a story about Buddy Manane. Or I spoke to uh, Tommy Dades recently, and he, he had mentioned uh, Buddy Manane and how he was involved in uh, some case. It's great, you know, when you hear about these people and you get to work with some of these people. Legendary. And so, yeah, legendary people. And you know something? You hope that uh, – all the great people didn't retire, but it seems like they've lost a lot of great experienced cops, great experienced detectives. And one of the things about the NYPD and a lot of police departments is that you're taught, you learn on the job. You learn a lot of things. You know, it's not like you, you're being going to training. You're being taught by other detectives. And everyone has their forte. Some guys are great in the box. Some guys are great on the street. Some guys are great at all different facets. My first day on the job in the 75 squad, very first day I reported there, they had a, a girl and her two kids were stabbed and burned. And I'm like, all right, jump in the car with somebody and get to the scene. And he just figured it out. I didn't know anything about anything back then, you know. Right. Uh, you know, I had a partner, Matt Hutchinson, and this guy could find anybody on a computer, right, anybody, plates, people, social media, whatever the case may be. and But he'd want to rip your head off in the interview room. So <laughs> he, was, he wasn't good in the box, yeah. So I'd take my time with the people, and then I'd give him something, and he'd run out, and boom, he'd, he'd find a person. It was amazing. He really uh, did a good job. You know, uh, Sean, it, it's funny that I had the uh, A-team in Manhattan North Homicide Squad, and I knew all my guys and what they were the best at and who were the best right. interviewers, interrogators, who was the best on the computer. And when it was a major case, I would, of course, watch the uh, interview. And sometimes you could tell when the detective's not the right fit for the person they're talking to. And I would, that's the only time I would ever interrupt it. I would ask them to step out. I'd say, listen, I've been watching this, and it doesn't seem like you got a good rapport with this guy. I loved interviewing people, and I was very patient. But even there was times I didn't click with the guy for whatever reason. And then same thing. Somebody else would jump in and – 
They had an instant connection. With exactly, them. exactly. You know, something For I... For whatever reason. Maybe the guy looked like somebody they knew back in high school, whatever the case may be. We had a case that we had to go to Willamette, Connecticut to pick up this guy that did this double murder in Manhattan. And two great detectives from the 2-3 squad, both of them retired as first graders, went at this guy for six hours. Nothing. He wouldn't, wasn't going. They came out and they said, Sarge, we're exhausted, man. We're not going to get it. Why don't you go in there? I said, I'm just as tired as you. I have, and I have no patience to begin with, right? So I put this female detective who was Hispanic and so was the perp. She went in there. 45 minutes later, she had a full confession. And she came out and she said to me, and this was sort of funny. She said, Sarge, he's ready to give up the whole thing, but he wants two packs of Newports. And a yep. large pepperoni pizza. And I said, I'll go out. I'm like a busboy. I'll go out and get it right now. Yep. And and he said something weird. He said, and he wants those two bastards to come back in because he wants to confess to them because they work so hard to get the confession. I was like, wow, what a nice perp. You know, he murdered yep. two people, but he's being nice to the popo. And you know what I always found, too? Uh, when they give us a statement, either verbally or written, when the DA would come to videotape them, they give a better statement. Because now <laughs> they start reenacting the crime and they start getting in. They would stand up off the chair and start reenacting it. I'm like, this guy tells a better story to the DA than he did. <laughs> and he wanted, he wanted to tell it to the camera, you know. <laughs> he wanted to tell it to the camera. Well, I miss those days. I miss getting out of the room and then just talking to the guys and what's the next step, what do you guys want to do next. And, you know, everybody played a part. All my partners or the guys on the team and the guys in the squad and, you know, they come up with ideas and you just ran with it. And it was great. I miss those days, definitely. You know, that's what we, you know, a lot of people that do these podcasts, they don't understand, like, uh, investigative direction. That's so important to get a direction to go in. I mean, before you guys had Daryl Littlejohn as the suspect, you were a little bit worried. Where, which, which way are we going? Right? I'll be honest with you. The first night on the crime scene, we thought, you know, it was a big prostitution area. We thought she was a pros, and if we couldn't idea, I'm never going to find out who killed you. So I, right then and there, I thought that night this was a lost case. Right. You know. But it, it's it's always, you know, it's I, funny is not the word, but it's it's ironic that you follow what you do and you keep doing what you do, and you shake that tree and something's going to fall out of it. I yeah. always always believed that, you know. Shake the tree. And, you know, in, in other types of murders, uh, narcotics murders, you know, you get narcotics through the buy and bust. Shake the tree, bring people in, debrief, you know, the whole game, yeah. right? And that is what New York City cops, New York City detectives, anyone in an investigative unit, you know that's how to do it, you know? But in a case like this that was so high profile, a real legitimate, real, real victim, not that other victims aren't legitimate, they're legitimate, but sometimes – as you know, people that are involved in the crime business and they get killed, we don't have tears running down the side of our face. There's no love lost for the local drug dealer that gets killed. Right, but this is a real a real victim, you know, a real person that was going to do something with her life. She had a family that cared about her. And, you know, it was, as we said, it was any girl USA going out to drink and celebrating her birthday, you know. And yeah this horrendous thing uh, happened to her, you know? Well, we're, we're over we're over an hour now, and uh, you want to – listen, I know you got guys you want to shout out to. 
and uh, be my guest. You, you got your kindergarten teacher watching this. What do you got? Honestly, I don't know who's watching, but I appreciate the support from over the years from everybody, especially the family that, uh, you know, sometimes I was never around for stuff because I'm helping the people of New York. So uh, I appreciate all their uh, sacrifice as well. Well, you know, I love to hear now, even when people will say to you, oh, thank you for your service. And, you know, it makes you feel good, you know, because we did get paid, but it, it, it also is a job that, can be, you know, uh, without a lot of thanks. And, you know, you do unbelievable things on the police department yeah. that, you know, most jobs don't require, like staying at work for three days in a row, you know. I had a defense attorney come up to me one day in court. It was, this, it was a homicide in the 7-3. Poor guy grabbed a gun. His friend was getting beat up, and he shot across the street just to get everybody to run away. And he killed the guy across the street by accident, not one of the perps in the fight. And but I just I treat this guy like I told you I treat everybody good because it's going to benefit me in the end. And I actually had a defense attorney come up to me in the hallway of Brooklyn Court and said, "I thank you for the way you treated my client." You never. Wow. No, 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 you, you never do. You know something, and that's like professionalism that uh, you know you 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 really appreciate hearing it. You know you appreciate the the professionalism that uh, you know not many attorneys are going to especially legal aid attorneys are going to uh, give a shout out to a detective that, Oh, you were very professional. Thank you. You know, but I but love it, my favorite time in the job and I worked, I retired out of joint terrorism task force. I did my last seven years out of there. We did a lot of great bad cases and terrorism cases, but terrorism, everybody's raising their hand. I did it. ISIS did it. Al Qaeda did it. They want you to know they did it. The guy on the murder doesn't want you to know he did it. No, absolutely not. So you can get that guy to tell you he did it. There's nothing better than that. No, that's did well. When after nine eleven, didn't they take the entire Brooklyn North homicide? They took majority of it. You just had Joe Herbert on one of your uh, podcasts recently. Yes, one great guy, great guy, ever on this job, and he was phenomenal. And um, he led that charge in JTTF, and that's how I ended up going there to follow in his footsteps. That's fantastic. You know, Sean, one of the things I like the best about doing this podcast is the great people I get to meet. And now you get put on the wall of fame with uh, 200 other guests we've had on this show. But you definitely, uh, you're on my wall of fame. And I really appreciate the work you did. And um, just for uh, a little shout out, um, this is my own show uh, as part of Police Off the Cuff, but it's called Real Crime Stories. And if you like um, these uh, Police Off the Cuff and Real Crime Stories, please subscribe to us on, on YouTube. Uh, I also, I'll put up our uh, Patreon. Uh, we have three tiers on our Patreon. The first tier for $7 a month, we call it the bucket. And you get, that's, that's the tier for seven a month. For $9 a month, it's called Polish My Rack. And you can actually get to Polish My Rack. And for $11 a month, it's dipped in butter. So whatever you want to dip in butter, that's what we would do. But you get to watch all of our content on a special site just for our Patreon customers. And uh, I also want to give a shout-out to Duty Ron, who's been helping us out on the, get our YouTube together. Uh, that's my name, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD Manhattan North Homicide Sergeant. And Sean McTie, retired NYP detective from Brooklyn North Homicide Squad. Sean, Bill, thank you for putting all your content out to everybody to see because a lot of people don't know all the great stuff that NYPD did. So 
Well, we want to let them know, and we want to let them know we have people on our live chat from all over the world, you know, from England. There was a guy from Africa the other night, you know, and they're finding out what great detectives the NYPD are. Sean, thank you so much. For everyone, for everyone watching, thank you so much for watching. I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Good night now. Thanks, good night.